This is episode 222 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Patrons get exclusive content, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes access to our show. Explore all the benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Some of the bears that survive from this sport. So we have uh, some skulls, for instance, of, of bears, 400-year-old bears who lived on Bankside and, and, and were kept captive there. And they can kind of extract DNA information from these skulls uh, and find out exactly some of the answers that we're looking for there. So where did they come from? What kind of species or genus were they? What were their ancestry like? Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. An anonymous diary was written in 1608 cataloging the keeping of bears for the sport of bear baiting in England. Our guest today calls this diary the Bearward Diary of 1608, and the term bearward is used to describe individuals whose job it was to take care of or travel with a bear, or in the case of this diary, multiple bears, for the purpose of putting on bear baiting shows all around different spots in England. The diary is a fascinating glimpse into the history of bear baiting and the logistics behind finding, showing, and traveling with bears in the 17th century. To help us explore the diary more and understand some of the history it reveals about bears in Shakespeare's lifetime is our guest and contributor to the Box Office Bears Project, Callan Davies. Callan Davies was a guest with us on That Shakespeare Life way back in episode 41, our very first year out of being a podcast. So make sure you check the show notes to find his previous episode with us, as well as the one you're listening to today. Callan Davies works across early modern literary, cultural, and theater history. His new book, What is a Playhouse? England at Play, 1520 to 1620, is an accessible account of the playhouse across early modern England. It's coming out in August of this year. That's 2020. And you can pre-order it at the links in the show notes today. Callan is part of the Box Office Bears project, and this project researches animal sports in early modern England, as well as the middling culture team examining early modern status, creativity, writing, and material culture. He's also a part of the Before Shakespeare team. The Box Office Bears project is what Callan joins us to discuss today, which is a UK Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project bringing together researchers from the universities of Nottingham, Roehampton, and Oxford and project partner Museum of London Archaeology. They are using zooarchaeology, archaeogenetics, which is the study of ancient DNA, archival research, and performance studies to examine the history of bears in early modern England. You can learn more about Callan, see his work, as well as his forthcoming book, along with links to all of these partnering organizations on the Box Office Bears Project in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Callan. It's so nice to have you back. I think you were with us our very first year of that Shakespeare life. And it's just such a delight to have you back here again as we enter year five of our show to be talking with us about bears in Shakespeare's lifetime. This is really fun to have you here again. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be, be invited back. I can't believe it's been five years. Wow. I know. I know. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. 
Now, Mm -hmm. I know that there were people traveling around England with bears. We read about that in your in your article. But why? Why were there people traveling around England with bears? And were sports like bear baiting portable like a traveling circus? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all strange to get your head around really nowadays that the sport of bear baiting was perhaps as popular, if not you know more popular, a pastime than something like dramatic playing, like like kind of Shakespeare did with with his company. You know, bear baiting essentially is at it, at its base the idea of tying a bear to the stake and then setting one or potentially more dogs on it. So you know that's sort of what 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 the sport is a really kind of cruel practice, and indeed. Some people of the time also expressed their their kind of disgust at, at, at the sport, but it didn't stop, didn't do anything to kind of dent its popularity. And in fact, so the the, the project um, I'm working on, Box of Spares project, we've kind of put together, we've looked through lots of different archival sources and some kind of published catalogues and come across over a working sort of reference at the moment of over 1,200 references to bears in all areas of England, you know, from the northeast to the southwest and so on and so forth. And so you're right, they are like a, something like a travelling circus, but certainly they were kind of moving around the roadways of, of England in this period. And some of that is a kind of national tour. So people coming out of maybe a centralised source in London and then appearing, say, in Newcastle. So often we have something like the King's Bear Ward paid X amount of money in a certain year, very, very far from the kind of royal source of bears in London. So there's kind of national scale for it, but there's also kind of local touring spots, maybe more regional ones where your local bear ward would be moving around, say, Cheshire. So, so for instance, there's a, a bear ward called Peter Broom in the 1610s who comes up re- regularly kind of told off basically over, over a decade, all in towns around kind of Cheshire. So we can kind of have a, a, a local touring circuits, a bit like the one in this Bearwards diary that we have on our website, which gives us a different circuit kind of coming out of London. Now, are bears native to England or where were they getting the bears? Yeah, this is a really great question. So that's one of the things So they, they there were no bears. Bears were extinct, uh, I believe, in, in England by this time and had been for, for many, many hundreds of years. Um, but one of the things the Box Office Bears Project is trying to do is answer that that question. You know, one of the, what I do is, is look at archives and archival documents and that sort of thing. My colleagues are, a, a number of them are kind of archaeologists who work with different methods in archaeology. And, and one of those methods is DNA analysis. So they will look at some of the bears that survive from this sport. So we have uh, some skulls, for instance, of, of bears, 400-year-old bears who lived on Bankside and, and, and were kept captive there. And they can kind of extract DNA information from these skulls uh, and find out exactly some of the answers that we're looking for there. So where did they come from? What kind of species or genus were they? What were their ancestry like? Yeah, so that's one of the things that the project's hoping to have some answers for in the next uh, year or two. The Bearward Diary of 1608 includes a map of the places the bears and their handlers traveled that year. Callan, where were the major bear performance hotspots for 1608? Yeah, I love this um, this word hotspot. So, well, so you're right. So the, the, the Bearward Diary, we've kind of extracted the locations that are mentioned in it in order to create a map or, or a journey. And I guess I should add, we've, we've kind of called it diary, Bearward's diary, but it's it's not a diary in the, in the kind of modern sense of how we would understand that. You know, dear diary, it's the 5th of August, 1608, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of more of a, a memorandum book or like an account book. So this anonymous Bearward who is writing it as he's on the road is noting down the different expenses that are going out 
out for this or that, or the other bare food, so on and so forth, and the money that's coming in as well. So it's kind of like a working financial document. But, you know, what it does is it tells us how long the bears and the bear ward are at a place on what date and, and then where they go to next. So we could take out these locations and kind of map what Google Maps would call the, the, the directions, basically, of the, of the route. And so what's surprising about this, the route that comes out of this particular document is that there are a number of places on it that are just not, they're just kind of not on the map, <laughs> so to speak. You know, they're not, some of them I've never heard of and, and remain very, very small villages today. Uh, but yet they're stopping there and, and in some cases performing at these, at these spaces. But another way to, I guess, approach that question of hotspots hot is to think about the relationship of these kind of smaller towns with London. Uh, and typically, we think of London as the kind of entertainment hotspot of this period. It's where um, some of the major playhouses were based. And similarly, with bear baiting, it's also where some of these early arenas were built in order to accommodate things like bear baiting and bull baiting. And as I've indicated, the kind of skeletons and the remains that uh, the Box Office Bears project are working with are drawn from sites on Bankside um, that give us, you know, that, that are themselves a, a kind of archaeological hotspot as, as well as one from 1608. But what this diary, I think, encourages us to remember is that there are hotspots all over England in this period. So Reading is one of the stops that they stopped coming out of London in the 1608 diary. But there are there are places in the north, in the south of England that are really similar to what's going on on Bankside. So Canterbury, for instance, from the late 16th and early 17th centuries, had right at its centre something called the bull stake, or the bull stake as one word. And, and there are still kind of places with this that, that maintain this kind of street term these days, the bull stake or the the bull ring. And this was like a hotspot for social activity and was also where baiting activities would have taken place. This kind of space was really richly arrayed. It had a sort of heraldic flags flying on it. It had a, a polished and presumably quite impressive weather vane sat at the top of it and was painted with the coat of arms of the city. So this is like a super rich, like elaborate and richly arrayed space, not dissimilar to some of the playhouses in London. And certainly in that sense, the kind of bear baiting arenas that sat on Bankside. And indeed, there are lots of expenses are spent to keep up joint seating. So sort of bench seating around this area. So it starts to sound very, very much like the hotspots, if you like, in Bankside. And we know that bears were, were kind of coming through this area of Canterbury, not only because Canterbury paid bear wards to kind of perform or bring their bears to the city, but also because one bear ward in particular was fined for soiling the Queen's Highway, or in other words, for not like scooping up <laughs> after the bear, you know. So, yeah, so this, this is one other hotspot that we might look to. And there were just so many of them around England. And I think that's what we're learning from this project. So in addition to the bears and the bear wardens who were, you know, in charge of the bears, I guess, who was it that traveled as part of this group? I mean, surely it wasn't just one guy with one bear going around the country. What what would we have seen if we had seen a bear warden set up traveling through the country? Yeah, I mean, we're, I'm, I'm so interested to kind of get back to that that sense of exactly what, say, what it might have been like to encounter someone walking towards you, you know, with a huge, with huge bear and, and what is part of this kind of party or train. This particular memorandum book or diary 
contains expenses in which two other people are actually named and mentioned, two other humans, one called Ned the Butcher and another called Bryant, mysteriously. And frustratingly, it's actually a little difficult to find out any more about who these people are. You know, it's, if someone's just called Ned the Butcher, <laughs> it's hard to kind of get a biographical handle on who they were or like what, you know, what archival documents might be associated with them. But the one thing we do know is that presumably Ned is a butcher. And this is this is kind of helpful because butchery is really closely associated with bear baiting and the, and the kind of handling of bears in this period. Partly this might be to do with because for hundreds of years it had been a legal requirement for butchers to bait bulls before they could sell any of their flesh or hides. So there's a kind of long-standing association between the occupation of butchery and the act of baiting. And obviously this seems to kind of translate into the recreational industry that surrounds bear baiting too. So, you know, so this is one kind of angle that we're interested in finding more about. What how how did butchers interact? with both sides of, of bear baiting. They also owned lots of dogs, for instance. But it's interesting that, you know, as you say, is it just one fella with his bears walking around? Because actually there are instances in which some that did occur. There was a, a 14-year-old boy arrested in Cheshire in the 1600s for walking around with his bear and professing the occupation of bear ward. So there were kind of both sides of it. There's this more potentially more professional train of people. And then there's just the single solo bear board operating. Well, so what were the bears fed on their journey? Because when you mentioned Ned the butcher, I was expecting you to say that his job was to cut up some smaller animal and then feed it to the bears. So then when you said his relationship might have been more on the administrative side or or handling the actual bear itself, I was surprised. So if he wasn't there to cut up meat for the bears to eat, then what was considered bear food for them while they're on their journey? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that's a great point you raised because maybe that is one of Ned the Butcher's jobs. Uh, I guess we don't, we just don't have enough detail to know, and perhaps that's true. But on the question of what exactly the bears were eating, I mean, the diary is again unhelpfully vague, I suppose, on this because when they put an expense for food, they will just say for the bears beer or for the bears meat, you know. And this is just a, a kind of generalist term for anything that, that, that the bear the bears might be eating, just consumables in general, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like as a shorthand for, for, for food. But one of the other sides of the box office bears project, the kind of zoo archaeological element that, that is working with these documents, but also with, with trying to understand the physical remains uh, of bears and dogs is perhaps able to answer that question. And in fact, so, you know, one of the other aims of the project is, again, to find out what was the diet of a bear in 1608 or what was the diet of a dog in 1608 who who was involved in this industry something called zooarchaeology which can draw out kind of chemical it can do chemical investigations of the bones and in doing so find out what it was they were eating when they were growing up and indeed where they were growing up in England by kind of comparing the chemicals in the bone with the the kind of soil structure uh, of the country so really really fascinating so we can kind of we, again, you know, in, within the next year, we are hoping to get some sense of what that what that beer or what that meat might actually have meant. So definitely follow the links in the show notes today so you can keep up with when they make all of these connections that are going on at the Bear Ward project over there. So, so how often were the bears fighting? I mean, were bear baiting spectacles held on a daily basis or did they come through every quarter or what kind of frequency was happening here? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, something that 
I think we've kind of been learning as we're going through the project about, about the frequency of it. And we're still learning a bit more about the practice of baiting itself. So as I mentioned at the start, although we have a document with, with a database with over 1,200 references to various documentary examples of bears and so on in, the, in this period, the actual event itself remains a little bit unclear. There aren't that many accounts of it. Uh, and we know that, that, you know, there are some glimpses, but, but the actual mechanic, mechanics are, are somewhat obscured. But we do know that it occurred all year round in the country. So this particular diary covers kind of August and September and, and I think start of October. But equally, you know, there are examples of uh, bear baiting occurring in January and June and so on and so forth. So it really is a, a 365-day pastime for this period. However, in terms of like specific days, I, I'm really intrigued by something in London that was issued by the Privy Council in 1591. So the kind of government of uh, Queen Elizabeth's government wrote a letter to the Lord Mayor in 1591, in which they were annoyed that people like, you know, like the dr- dramatic companies that Shakespeare would have become a part of were playing dramatic performances on Sundays. And in the same breath, they said, they sort of outlawed performances on Sundays, but they also said, can you also please not play on Thursdays? And the reason that they they ask for no Thursday performances, as they explained to the Lord Mayor, is because on those Thursdays, those other games, i.e. of bear baiting, usually have always been accustomed and practised. So we might get little glimpses into, you know, Thursdays, on Thursdays, it's a bear day, you know, that kind of thing, which, which I think is interesting, but the calendars might be different in different parts of the country. Were the bears considered respectable animals? I mean, were these looked at like athletes or were they looked at as kind of ex- expendable animals? Is a sport for the animal as well? Like I, I think of horse racing, for example. It's a sport. It's a spectator sport. But the horses are considered athletes and they're, they're treated accordingly. Were the bears treated like athletes as well and taken you know, care of and, and given food to sort of enhance their performance? Or were they just used up until they were done and then replaced? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so there's one instance in, in the Bearwood's diary of a shilling and two pence for oil for the blind bear. And I think, you know, with something like this, we can get a sense of the, yeah, that kind of caring practice and the respect for the animal itself. And, and there are ways perhaps in which we can read affective or emotional relationships between the, between the humans and the animals who, who are working quite closely together, even in the context of a really exploitative industry like this. But the other, I guess, another way of, of approaching that question of respect is about the, the role that the bears played nationally or locally. And they almost all seem to have be given human style names. You know, we have things like Ned of Canterbury or Beef of Ipswich. Judith of Cambridge is another one. And in fact, Shakespeare mentions some really famous bears in his plays. Uh, so in Merry Wives of Windsor, he talks about Sackerson, the bear. I was hoping you were <laughs> going to mention old Sackerson. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, these are like early modern celebrities, essentially. So there's a, there's a kind of respect accorded to them or a narrative put upon them. But I, I suppose the thing to bear in mind is that with all of that being the case, this is an industry that relies on a certain kind of economic structure. And bears were really expensive, you know, relatively. I think what, so there's an inventory in the, in the early 1600s that puts them at about £12, which is quite a substantial sum. And so bear wards would have been really invested in the survival and well-being of a bear, not necessarily because of their own relationship to it, but because you you need these bears to survive time after time after time because they're the, the kind of star of the show. 
So I suppose in terms of care and respect, it's got to be balanced between these potential human-animal relationships that come from working really closely and intensely over weeks, which is what this diary kind of shows, uh, with the really exploitative ends of the bear-baiting industry. Callan's write-up for Box Office Bears mentions payments being recorded for damages caused by the bears, for example. So I would like to discuss here, Callan, whether the bears were kept in cages or possibly kept in pens, or were they, as you alluded to earlier with the 14-year-old boy that got arrested, just walking around with a bear on a leash? How were the bears transported physically? Yeah, I mean, I I just think the living situation of, of these animals is really, really intriguing. And again, a bit like the actual practice of the game, somewhat elusive. But records from kind of across the country show that during their forced travels, these bears stayed in all sorts of locations. And again, the diary is interestingly vague on this. They talk about lodging, which the bears had, or lodging for the bears. And we know from other kind of records that that lodging could be a church house or a tavern yard you know it can sort of range from all sorts of of locations uh, in Nantwich a kind of market town in Cheshire bears were kept by one particular bear ward on an inn property called the bear you know sort of out the back and in fact we've got a short animation about that on the box office bears website about some events that happen around the bear but I think the most telling one of the most kind of telling clues to, to sort of getting our head around the living situation of bears, is an owner from Lancashire in 1622, who, when he died, left behind a kind of inventory, which which records all the different goods that they possessed and the values uh, of those goods. And the fifth item, and by far the most expensive on this list, is a bear called Chester. And a little further down, if we kind of pursue this inventory, what, what inventories are quite interesting at is they take you into the early modern household because they sort of go room by room. So you're sort of getting a tour of all the different bits and pieces that somebody owned, everything that made up their world, but also therefore the kind of architecture of their house. And for this particular owner, it includes a load of kind of outdoor appurtenances, so sheds and sort of working um, bits and pieces. And one of the these outdoor buildings is described as a bear house and stable, which had uh, what they call a cratch over it and a cratch is kind of a term for like a trough to feed animals Uh, and I think this is fascinating I mean that phrase bear house kind of suggests a bespoke structure built to house this bear who's called Chester Chester the bear and you know it offers all sorts of synonym uh, parallels with with words like playhouse and bear house you know is this some given the kind of entertainment industry they're associated with is there a, a parallel there But I think, you know, what is clear is that these animals have domestic arrangements of their own, even as they're kind of peripatetic, like their owners were kind of moving between lodging to lodging, just as you would do if you were traveling the country by horse, you know, to get to to, to your next destination. Obviously, as these bears are traveling around England, they, they need to eat and they need to go to the bathroom and they would have injuries from the nature of their sport that would need to be tended. So were there veterinarians that were traveling with them or is there any mention of medical care being provided to the bears? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, one of those areas that it would it would be really good to know more about, I suppose. Um, I kind of mentioned earlier that that this money is laid out for oil to apply to, to one of the um, bears who, who was traveling with them, which, again, which intimates this kind of vague medical care and presumably some sort of knowledge of what might be appropriate, what sort of balm might be appropriate 
on that occasion. You know, as I mentioned before, butchers too were really, really closely involved with this industry. And we know that Ned was traveling with them. And it may well be that butchers, you know, this is just speculation, basically, but it, it may well be that butchers did have some sort of specialist knowledge of these animals because of how typically associated their trade was with, with bears. But I think, you know, a lot of this knowledge in a period before veterinary science was a, a defined thing as, as we understand it, a lot of this knowledge must have just come from working very closely with these animals on a daily basis and maybe in a similar way to so that the scholar Erica Fudge has done amazing work thinking about the complex human animal relationships uh, in particular around kind of early modern livestock and other uh, other farming animals Uh, and I wonder if there's a similar sort of thing at work here a similar kind of intuitive knowledge. Just from sheer experience this I've done this and so I know I know what works and exactly yeah. yeah. Now, in previous episodes of That Shakespeare Life, we've mentioned Philip Henslow and Edward Allen as masters of the bears, and they were responsible for keeping the animals used for bear baiting sports, specifically in the king's service. Callan, was there a relationship between the bear wardens and the master of the bears? Yeah, again, I mean, this is such a, an interesting way, I guess, of getting into the question of what the bear baiting industry was in this period. So there were different types of bear wards. So ostensibly, this was a kind of centralised industry where the master who had responsibility over bulls, bears, and mastiff dogs, you know, sort of around the country, that was the, the, the kind of regulatory centre. And certainly this, the bear ward who was writing this particular document was in service to, to one of the masters, Edward Allen, because when he'd finished this tour after, after two and a half months, he returns to London and gives the document in question back to Edward Allen, who himself does sums in the back of it and then kind of divvies up the money, basically. So this is a, a person who's not working for themselves, but who's, who's been paid a cut uh, of the work that they're doing. So we have a kind of clear hierarchical structure. Uh, and certainly elsewhere in the country, as I might have suggested, bears had, bear wards had other patrons, sometimes aristocratic patrons like the Earl of Leicester or Lord Strange, who um, is particularly associated with bears, enough for somebody to sing a ballad about Lord Strange and his bears. But there were also bear wards who seemingly had no patronage or indeed no license at all to be able to sort of have the bear. So I mentioned that this 14-year-old boy who, who was arrested, but nonetheless, these people operated kind of regularly continually getting arrested so this is one of the things you, you, you kind of see as a pattern in the archive year after year the same name <laughs> is turning up for the same crime basically so it's not really deterring them it's not, it's not stopping them from doing what they're doing yeah exactly yeah and i suppose if it continues to be at least somewhat lucrative then then it's working for them even with these kind of the danger of being associated with being a rogue or a vagabond you know something that carries moral connotations as well as the inconvenience of being fined you know so I think it, that question that you've asked really gives us an insight into the social world of Shakespeare's England. And I guess the breadth of social status or reputation that bear wards or indeed anyone working in the entertainment industry had. You know, some of them did really well for themselves, whereas others were continually on the cusp of poverty or, or of punishment. Well, we're already excited to learn more about bears and bear wardens in Shakespeare's lifetime. And I know we're we're ready to just dive in and learn more. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? And please tell us the URL for Box Office Bears, where we can go and see some of the animations and, and resources that you've mentioned today. Well, I'll start with the the, the self-promotional thing out of the way. <laughs> yeah, so that's um, 
boxofficebears.com uh, and that will take you to our reasonably new shiny website which has got resources and kind of explainers and, and all sorts on it and we're continuing to populate that. We also have uh, well, I suppose I, I ought to mention that um, I've, I have a book coming out in August, which touches on some of these. So some of the anecdotes that I've mentioned could, can be found in that, which is called What is a Playhouse? And that, so that can be pre-ordered. But in terms of, you know, the really exciting stuff. So Erica Fudge, who I mentioned earlier, her work is a, is a real must read. Um, just sort of fascinating and, and nuanced and ethically aware investigations into the way that animals were understood in this period and the way that human animal relationships work. There's a series of excellent chapters in a book called The Routledge Companion to Shakespeare and Animals, edited by Holly Dugan and Karen Raber, which will sort of you know branch you out from just bears or just dogs. And there's a whole menagerie, essentially, of relationships between Shakespeare and animals. And then I guess the, the last thing to mention, which has really underpinned a lot of the work that we've done, and, and so a lot of what I've been talking about today, which is the Records of Early English Drama series. And this is just an amazing compendium of documents, which was done sort of by county, county by county, of anything to do with the kind of entertainment industry. And their website now has uh, sort of digital editions uh, of their latest volume. So that's certainly worth checking out. So records of early English drama or read. Absolutely. We will place links to all of these resources, including where you can pre-order Callan's book coming out next month and the read compendium of documents. You can find uh, direct links to that in the show notes. So make sure you hang on for the end uh, for where to find those. Callan, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, I can't remember what I answered last time, but I think it might have been like more scholarly related as a sort of, you know, connection. But I'm going to go off piece with this one. Okay. <laughs> I think, yeah, so I think so. Um, my, one of my colleagues on Box Office Bears, Andy Kesson, uh, lent me a cookbook recently, a Fuchsia Dunlop's cookbook, which is about kind of Sichuan cooking. And I feel like on the desert island, I'm not going to have any ingredients, but I'm also not going to have like loads of ability to cook stuff. So it'd be quite fun to, to sort of, yeah, like, read through the rich history of everything that I'm missing <laughs> and that I'd like to learn about and just, yeah, just marvel at these kind of recipes. So it'd be a recipe book, maybe that one. I think that's a good choice for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, we've got lots coming up with the project. So we've got, we've got some events coming up this summer, not all of them in person. So that, you know, sort of international audiences welcome. So do keep an eye out on the website for that. Uh, the, another project that I'm, I'm working with, Midling Culture, uh, has a virtual reality room kind of from, from the 17th century uh, filled with sort of narratives and objects and, and what have you that you can kind of move around with an attached exhibition, which is coming out later this year. So if people are interested in kind of, I mentioned one of those tours of the room that you get from the inventory, this idea of visiting a, a kind of a house from one of Shakespeare's contemporaries. So this is a chance to kind of do that online. Yeah, so they're the two, two, two things. That's so amazing. I can't type fast enough. I'm over here taking notes as you're telling me this, and I'm writing things like, this is awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. I didn't know about the virtual reality room coming out from Midland Culture. We will make sure to keep our eyes on box office bears as well as the link to come and tour a house from one of Shakespeare's contemporaries. This is all fascinating stuff we'll look forward to. Thank you, Cal and Davies, so much for being here this week and walking us through the history of bears and bear baiting and how that worked for Shakespeare. Shakespeare's Lifetime. This was a fun conversation. Yeah, a delight. Thank you so much. 
Be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. Our show notes for today's episode contain more information on our guest and their research, as well as links to the resources Callan mentions today about the Bear Warden Diary, that animation that he wanted you to see, as well as the partnering organizations like the Midling Culture, Box Office Bears Direct Link, and Before Shakespeare, among others. They're all packed in there for the regular show notes that go along with each of our episodes. You can find these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 222. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP222. There's even more history about bears, bear baiting, and the Bear Warden of 1608, including woodcuts and paintings of different bear baiting arenas, along with maps and other visual content that coordinates with our show today. You can unlock all of these things by being a patron of our show. It's $5 a month to be a patron of our show, and it gets you access to all of the detailed show notes that we do. That's four episodes a month, sometimes five on weeks when we have five Mondays. So for a dollar an episode, you can have access to tons of in-depth research related to our topic, including visual content that we can't share with you over the audio. If that sounds exciting to you and you'd like to come along and dive into the more in-depth history notes with us, then you can sign up right on the regular show notes page, or you can sign up at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Again, that's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.